As tough welfare reforms are rolled out and the government wades through thousands of submissions on tackling child abuse, there is renewed determination to know why so many families are going wrong. This Radio New Zealand Insight looks at the latest information from the longitudinal study Growing Up in New Zealand, which is trying to figure out the effect policy has on people. Auckland University's 21-year study following 7,000 babies and their families has released its second round of research looking at the first nine months of their lives. This stage has tackled topics like birth, breastfeeding, immunisation and postnatal depression, among others. I'm Teresa Cowie, and one year on from meeting six of those 7,000 babies for the first time, I've returned to find out how their lives are taking shape so far. And what this can tell us about what it's like to grow up in New Zealand in the 21st century. The most obvious place to start is at birth. The children in the study are now about three years old, so I've asked their parents to cast their minds back to the first nine months of their child's life. My first stop is to visit Sarah and Derek Phillips in the well-off Auckland suburb of Meadowbank to find out how the first major event in the life of their baby Rowan unfolded. Isaac and Rowan, can you come and get your bags, please? Your sandals, please. It's a scorching summer's day, and Sarah is collecting Isaac, who's nearly five, and Rowan, who's three, from kindergarten. Sarah, a stay-at-home mother, is one of the two-thirds of women in the study who reported having a spontaneous vaginal delivery, or as she describes it, a pretty textbook birth. It was much different from the first one. It was a lot faster. It, um, it came on in the morning, luckily. I didn't have any uh, sleepless night the night before like I did with the first one. So, yeah, it was probably 7.30 in the morning. First started getting some twinges, and um, we had to call my husband's sister in to look after her. Isaac, who at the time was 19 months old. I think we left for the hospital at 9.30 and Rowan was born at 17 past 11. By the time I asked for pain relief options, they kind of laughed and said, you don't have any. <laughs> they said, don't worry about it, you've only got half an hour to go. And they were right. So yeah, it was much different and a lot better in many ways, but much more intense. As is traditional for some Māori families, Jada McPhee and her husband Patrick had a group of family members in the delivery room with them for the birth of their son Kanoa. It was lovely having everybody there and it was hilarious trying to stop Patty's mum take photos secretly on her <laughs> phone. Because <laughs> she's, she's all up in anybody's birth. Um, and it sounds like a lot beautiful. of people to have at the birth. Well, and yeah, that ain't nothing compared to some of, some, the, some, of the, some of the family have had, you know, literally a cast of thousands. The couple had hoped for a natural and drug-free delivery at a birthing centre, but things didn't quite go to plan. They burst a blood vessel um, at some point there on the inside, which meant that I was too swollen to effect a pushing birth there at the birthing centre, so they had to call the ambulance from Middlemore, which I swear was the slowest Trust. drive in my life. And he went the wrong and he went, way. And he went the longest way, honestly, he went the longest way possible. Jada says she was pleased she didn't have to have a caesarean. It's already well established that older women are more likely to have complicated births resulting in a caesarean section. 
And as the median age of women giving birth is now 30, a growing number of women are needing caesareans. Come and come now and get ready with your sister. I was just getting a towel. Oh. You go have a shower and I'll come and help you, um, help you um, trust in you. Hilda Pritchard from Papakura has five children. Elaine, who's 15, who's severely disabled with cerebral palsy. Ethan, who's 14. Eliakin, who's 13. 10-year-old Evangeline and her youngest, Amelia, who's four. Hilda had had a tubal ligation after having her fourth child, but the procedure didn't work, and six years later she was astonished to find she was pregnant again. Like many older mothers in their 30s and 40s, she suffered from preeclampsia, a condition where the mother has dangerously high blood pressure and had to have an emergency caesarean. It was scary at first because um, I was going to have, I was so ready to have a, a normal birth baby, but uh, my blood pressure was so high, so I had to have caesarean to get her out. They wanted her out as soon as possible. Um, she came out. She looks so old. She looks really wrinkled, <laughs> but very long, baby. Um, yeah, and um, but everything was was all right. The director of the Growing Up in New Zealand study, Dr. Susan Morton, says its findings on cesareans mirror current statistics, with about a quarter of mothers having the procedure. But I think it does also point us towards a, a changing pattern of age at uh, first baby, let alone age it at later or subsequent infants. And it does seem quite clear from, from much research now, as well as from this study, that the older a mum, the more likely that she is to require more assistance, really, either with becoming pregnant or actually at the delivery stage. And that, that obviously has implications around the time of birth for health service use, because those mums and the babies will often need a higher level of care than a mum who has had a spontaneous vaginal delivery. She says health services will need to think about planning for the increase in caesarean sections for medical reasons and possibly for mothers who want to have caesareans for convenience. From the moment a baby enters the world, their early life will be consumed by firsts. Those first moments of relief when parents and child finally meet. Their first foods. Are you ready for a kai kai? It's time for kai before it gets cold. Ha <laughs> cute. First steps, first teeth are all photographed, videoed, emailed and uploaded on social networking sites and shared around the world in a way that could never have been imagined by previous generations. This world the children are being born into will shape the people they are in the future. And so, even in the first few months, the growing up in New Zealand researchers are trying to find out how these babies have used the media. When I arrive at Kanoa McPhee's house in the affluent Auckland suburb of Maraitai, his father Patrick's giving him a bath, while his mother Jade is in the kitchen cooking the evening meal. Kanoa was recruited into the study before he was born in 2008. He's now three, and this latest research to be released is taken from interviews and phone calls with his parents in the first nine months after he was born. I'm not actually 
Kanoa loves playing video games with his family, and his parents, who run a social media company, say their original ideas around limiting his screen time have not quite gone to plan. The McPhees are among almost a third of parents in the study who said their baby watched television as a newborn. He's watched a lot of television when either I was at home with him and needed to do the washing or, you know, that time out or even just a little mental health break. I mean, it's brilliant. I didn't expose him to older kids' cartoons or programs or anything too stimulating or violent or aliens or anything. It was all that lovely, soft, peach fuzz, backyardigans, age-appropriate, interactive, little Einstein stuff. And then as he got older and got more interested in movies, he's watched a lot of movies, like, um, you know, the Happy Feet type ones. And again, we've had to, I suppose, censor a lot of the movies he's been exposed to. In a couple of years, Kanoa will be starting at a Rudolf Steiner school, which has a learning philosophy focusing on using imagination, and television watching is discouraged. Because of this, the McPhees are gradually trying to reduce his viewing. In Auckland's Mount Ross School, Donna Entercott, a school guidance counsellor, and her husband Paul, a TV editor, are raising their boys, Sam, who's three, and Zach, who's 18 months. They say when their eldest was a baby, he barely watched television. They laugh now about how their ideals went out the window when number two came along, but they're now getting a handle on the situation. We made a conscious decision because we were having trouble getting Sam to sleep. So we don't have TV after five unless I'm having a really bad day and Paul's at work and the kids are melting down or something. Um, I might put it on for half an hour at like half past six or something. But generally we try not to have TV after five o'clock. Yeah, and definitely not definitely not just before they go to bed yeah. now because and we, we sort of, you know, we, we decided that was one of the reasons it was so hard to get them to sleep. Cause yeah, because we, we used to feed them, bath them, and then put them in front of the telly from like 6 o'clock till half past 7 and then we couldn't get them to bed or Sam in particular and then it was like, you know, this is crazy because that's not actually winding them down. The study's director, Dr Susan Morton, says the findings were not what they expected. We were reasonably surprised that, you know, even by the age of nine months, we had one in three of the children who were you know, watching children's TV programs daily, you know, one in five who were, were viewing videos and so on daily by the age of nine months. So, and, and even more, you know, three quarters or so who were passively um, around that media uh, regularly. So I think that's an early exposure. We, we're not really sure over time quite how that will play out in terms of the development, but obviously... This sort of study provides us with a perfect opportunity to keep looking at how that technological engagement changes over time and how that aligns to their various developmental trajectories. The McPhees and Entercott children's viewing is limited by their parents' effort to ensure their children's well-being. But further south in Manurewa, three-year-old Katani Jackson's exposure to television has been cut short because of money. Katani and her two-year-old brother Zef Jackson live with their mother Marcy Heihei, who's a single mother and nursing student. Marcy didn't want to be interviewed by Insight this time, but last time we spoke she told me Katani was learning a lot from television. The children now spend most of their time being looked after by their grandmother, Taruma Heihei, while their mother studies, and she tells me they're now watching less television. They come here and the, t- the TV is these tall. 10 o'clock, and then no more programs, and then about 2 o'clock they'll start watching it again, yeah. Is that because that's when the children's programs yeah. are on? Yeah. yeah. I used to have Sky, but I cut it off. 
couldn't yeah. afford it. And you know, on Sky, you've got it going all day, every day, you know. And what did you think about that? Did you not particularly want them to be watching it all day? No, I didn't mind. That's what they do at home, so it might have them. Money's tight for this family. Marcy became pregnant with her first child, Katani, when she was a teenager, with her then-boyfriend, Zef Jackson. Sixteen months later, the couple had their second child, Zef Jr., while Marcy was still on the domestic purposes benefit, and the children's father has limited involvement in their day-to-day -day life. Ministry of Social Development statistics show that 4,800, or 7.5% of babies born in 2010, were to families who were already on the benefit, and this figure has been rising steadily. This is the sort of scenario the government's recently enacted welfare reforms aim to stop, in the hope of curtailing benefit dependency that stretches over generations in one family. From October this year, if a person has another baby while they're on the benefit, they'll have to look for full-time work when that child turns one. Dr Susan Morton says the study's researchers have been asked by the ministry, which is its main funder, to look into what effects reforms like this will have on poorer families. When we go back to the families at each point of contact, we do ask them specifically, firstly, about whether they know about some of the policies that perhaps are designed to enable them to help them bring up their children. That will often follow information about whether they're actually receiving some of those additional supplements and also what difference that is making to them in terms of their children, both from a perception point of view of the parents but also by being able to measure the outcomes of the children and the development of the children and what the families are able to engage with and what activities and so on their children are able to engage with that perhaps they might not have been able to if they hadn't been able to access those services. So it is something we're very keen to actually provide information on because we can actually ask the family directly about how that has affected them and that that gives so much more depth of information than just sort of a cross-sectional analysis of the number of families who are accessing a particular benefit. Taruma says she's really proud of her daughter for wanting to get an education and be able to finally provide for her own family. She loves it. She's a new person, a different person. Yeah. What sort of changes have you noticed? Oh, you know, um, just, just happier. You know, she's not bored, you know. I'll support her all the way, even if I had to stay home and look after the kids all the time, you know. Since my last visit, Lisa O'Hanlon from Morrinsville in Waikato has moved off the benefit. She's now working full-time. She has four children, but her teenage daughter Skylar lives with her father. Lisa's bringing up Tate, who's three and in the study, and his brothers, four-year-old Lakin and six-year-old Boston. It's five o'clock in the evening when I arrive at Lisa's house to see her, and she's rushing in the door with bags of groceries. I just get my groceries in. At the busiest time of the year at the Stud Farm stables where Lisa works, she's working up to 14 hours a day. She tells me how she's managing being back in full-time work. It was hard. I thought I was doing it better for me and the boys, like financially yeah. and that, but sort of kind of ended up worse off by the time you pay for petrol, pay for the nanny, yeah. the pause lady, and yeah, just the travelling and everything, it sort of, sort of worked out a bit worse off. But we, we are, we're still doing all right, but I'm just not making those savings towards owning my own house. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I feel heaps better going out and working and like not sitting at home all day. I sort of feel I let the boys down a bit, but... 
but then I'm showing them that I go out and I work and I'm you know, and I'm doing the money and like they come out to work as well because they're allowed to come out and they love it out there so it's really good. Between pregnancy and when the child was nine months, the number of homes with only one parent doubled to 7.4%. Lisa O'Hanlon is one of the 463 women in the study who broke up with their partner shortly after the birth of their baby. She says it was a difficult time for her and Tate's father and she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and prescribed antidepressants to help with the symptoms. When the babies in the study were nine months old, a tenth of their mothers were showing signs of postnatal depression. Marcy Heihei's mother, Taruma, believes her daughter was depressed in the weeks after her first baby, Katani, was born, although it was never diagnosed. Oh, I've just noticed the, um, the tiredness, sleeping all the time, the laziness, the moodiness. And how did you deal with it at the time? I just left her and, and um, looked after the kids for her. Back in Mount Roskill, Donna and Paul Entercott say Donna had symptoms of postnatal depression after the birth of their first son, Sam, but it wasn't diagnosed until after Zach was born. I didn't recognise it really for what it was. You know, it was just that everyone was under stress and, you know, everyone was lacking sleep and stuff. And, um, yeah, I think other people pointed it out more than I did, eh? Mm. Other people realised that how bad it was for you more than I did. Yeah, and we, we were going through a massive change, you know, and, and doing all of these major life milestones at once sort of thing. And it was just the culture shock, I think, of um, it's so different. And um, just the broken sleep I found really hard to cope with. And Sam had just started sleeping through the night when I got pregnant with Zach, and that sort of flipped me out. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then I had a difficult delivery with Zach, which didn't help. So um, it really came to a head when I thought, I don't know how I'm going to cope with two because I thought I wasn't coping with one. But it was, I just had to shift my expectations, and I, I was coping, but I just had quite high expectations on myself. Dr Susan Morton says for some women, problems arose before they'd even fallen pregnant. One of the great advantages of a longitudinal study is we can look at when these issues or problems or perhaps symptoms have started to evolve and actually the work that we've been able to do even now with just three sets of data suggests that those mums who are most at risk of developing postnatal depression have actually had a history of depression or during their pregnancy and so maybe there is a way that we can focus on providing support for mums perhaps earlier rather than waiting till postnatal depression symptoms arise later when some of those mums are, are then struggling to provide the environment that they would really like to for their children. Having a baby is an intense time in a person's life. Learning to live through a haze of torturous sleep deprivation Acclimatising to the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week responsibility of being a parent and learning to breastfeed can be both painful and emotionally gruelling. 97% of women in the study tried to breastfeed their babies. Marcy Heihei's mother, Taruma, says her daughter tried but gave up breastfeeding. Marcy couldn't breastfeed. Mm. Yeah, so just for a, a few days or a few weeks? Yes, I'd okay. say days. And what about for Zef? Was Zef breastfed? No, no. She, she tried to, but she couldn't. Was she able to get any help? Was there anyone around There's to help? There people there for her, yep. but she was too sore. 
The Ministry of Health recommends babies are fed only breast milk until they're ready for solids at about six months of age. Most babies in the study were no longer having only breast milk by about four months. 19% of mothers said they'd stop breastfeeding because they'd gone back to work and feeding or expressing breast milk wasn't convenient or possible. Shortly before falling pregnant, Donna Entercott landed a new job after retraining as a school guidance counsellor. She went back to work when Sam was four months old. She continued to breastfeed him until he was nine months old. So I was driving across town at lunchtime to breastfeed, but sometimes they'd already fed him and it was... You know, it was really stressful to try and keep the breastfeeding going. She says in hindsight it was too early to go back, so she stayed at home longer with their second child. At 65%, the majority of growing up in New Zealand children weren't in any form of regular childcare at nine months of age. Hilda Pritchard decided to stay home full-time because her daughter Amelia is her last child and she wants to savour the time she has with her while she's still young. To me, I wasn't ready to let her go. I mean, I wanted her to go, but I wasn't... I, it's me, I wasn't ready for her to go to kindy. Uh, so we were, like, going and not going, and then eventually they took her name out. So I called them this year and I said, I think I'm ready now for her to come to school, <laughs> to kindy. Katani and Zef Jackson's mother Marcy was living at home with her mother Teruma when they were born, so their grandmothers always shared responsibility for their care. She had none of your muscles, remember? Wow, wow, guess not. How many muscles you got, eh? I'm the girl. Oh, you're the girl. You're the clever girl, eh? Are you clever? You sure are. Teruma says the children were at Kohangareo, but they're now at home with her during the day. And then towards the end of the year, Marcy pulled them out because she didn't like the way the women were with the kids. And then she tried to get them back in again, but there were no vacancies, so they said. Jada and Patrick McPhee's son, Carnor, was first looked after by Patrick's brother when Jada returned to work to do a short contract. We had Pat's brother living with us, who was our manny. Um, so he looked after him during the day when I went back on his contract work. Yep. And then they offered it to be contractor, but still reasonably permanent. So that's when we looked into the local kohanga where we were, and they were lovely. You know, they were like nannies. Hands together. God bless my nannies. God bless my nannies. God bless my puppets. God bless my puppets. God bless mama. God bless mama. The church also plays a big part in the McPhee's lives, and they say knowing that Kanoa would be exposed to lots of different children, both at church and when he went to Kohangareo, helped them to decide whether to have him immunised. I suppose because of the Steiner and the holistic way of you know my family all around me and stuff, some of my cousins aren't immunised, some are. We're very pro or non you know, so there's a lot of debate already in the family about whether you do or don't. And as it got to the point where I realised at some point I was going to have to return to work, that meant would he be exposed to kids that were immunised and he wasn't and how that would affect his health. And then also we were going to church every Sunday, which meant that they were, you know, exposed to kids in various stages of inoculation or not as well. And it was just I just decided I'd rather hedge my bets and have him be inoculated and, and really hope and pray for no adverse side effects from being jabbed with something. For Sarah and Derek Phillips, the decision was simple. For us it was kind of a no-brainer, it's just what needs to be done. 
that's sort of it not only for our kids' health, but it's, to me it's a sort of community responsibility. By the age of nine months, nearly all babies had received their six-week jabs. That began dropping off at the three-month mark, and by the fifth month, immunisation rates had dropped to 90%. I mean, she, she will cry, but it will only be for a short while. But you're quite happy for us to do it? Yeah. Yep. Despite good intentions before they were born, fewer parents took their children to be immunised than they'd indicated. That suggests that knowing about immunisation is not sufficient on its own for action. Understanding why parents do or don't immunise, breastfeed or have their children in early childhood education is exactly the sort of information the government wants from the study. It wants to use the data as it makes decisions about where money needs to be spent or to find out if it's actually going to waste. The information collection has been funded chiefly by the Ministry of Social Development, along with 16 other government agencies, for the past five years. The study's director, Dr Susan Morton, says funding from the middle of this year is yet to be decided, but the ministry's helping it to find other financial support. So far, the study, which is separate from the Otago University Longitudinal Study, begun in the 1970s, has taken $25 million to set up and run for the first five years. And she says it would take 3 to $5 million a year to keep it going. We're poised to deliver the two-year data and the preschool data to start filling in that critical period that we don't have much information about our current generation on. And really the cost of adding to what we've already collected is quite small compared to the investment that's been made to date. And we really just want to ensure that we can keep those relationships going with the families, keep, importantly, the range of families engaged in the study, because obviously funding cuts will, will hurt mostly our most vulnerable families. And it is critically important that we have enough resource to ensure that we can keep following those families up to understand their stories, to understand firstly what creates vulnerability and what that means for children. Last July, the government released a discussion document called the Green Paper for Vulnerable Children to stimulate debate among the public about child abuse and neglect. By the time submissions on the Green Paper closed at the end of last month, 9,000 people had sent in their views on how to deal with the problem. The study's current major task is to provide a definition of vulnerability and information on how to identify which families might abuse or neglect their children. We can also look at what traditionally defines vulnerability in families, and those are things like living in high deprivation areas or perhaps being born to younger mums or being born to mums without a partner. And we have you know, a large number of families and children who fall into those categories and we can look at how their development is potentially different from those children born in other situations. And importantly we can look at those children who may be born in those conditions but who actually develop resilience and so who don't actually develop outcomes that are poor in whatever sector that, or scope or domain that we might look at. And I think that's actually really important to have that information about what works alongside what doesn't, because sometimes that's what we're missing. We, we focus on the problems, but we don't necessarily know how to do things about them that are going to work for this current set of families growing up here today in the environment that, that is New Zealand today. That information will be sent to those processing the submissions on the Green Paper for Vulnerable Children. 
Work's now being done on the white paper, and from that, a 10-year children's action plan will be developed for release later this year. I'm Theresa Cowie, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. The programme was written and presented by me, Teresa Cowie. It was produced by Philippa Tolley and technical production was by Steve Burridge.